The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to episode 175 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Hold on to your seats. You are in for a treat today. Oh my gosh. Our guest is none other than Oscar-nominated screenwriter for Sleepless in Seattle, Jeff Arch. And I'm just blown away that I get to have him here on the show to discuss what is his very first novel, his debut novel, uh, Attachments. It comes out a week from today of when this episode comes out. Uh, the episode drops on May the 4th, which I know, there's the joke right there. May the 4th be with you. So, <laughs> so yes, when this episode comes out, may the 4th be with you all. But a week from now is the the uh, the real important date when Mr. Arch's book comes out, Attachments. And, of course, there's going to be a link in the show notes. This is a great conversation. We had a... I, I, I don't know if I can say we, but certainly I had a blast talking to Jeff, we went, we covered so many things. Uh, we talk about the hurt that a writer writes from, uh, how stories are everywhere, the I wonder factor, a 30-year story that'll be done when it's ready to be done, uh, which is the case with attachments. You know, he, he got the idea for attachments before he ever wrote Sleepless in Seattle. Keeping the spirit of a book when you're writing a script how to booby trap a script. I mean, the list goes on and on. I've got so many notes written down here of things that we talked about. It just goes on and on. I mean, I could go on about everything that we're going to talk about, but I'd rather just get you to the interview as soon as possible because it's so good. It's so much fun. And Jeff's book, for fans of the TV series, This Is Us, you're going to love it. And uh, I think what I'll do is I'm going to go ahead and give you a uh, a little quote that I found that is just, just wonderful. Uh, This is from David Kirkpatrick, the former production chief at Walt Disney Studios and president of Paramount Pictures. He says it best when he says, Prior to reading this wonderful book, I had only known Jeff Arch's body of work as a screenwriter, most famously for his Oscar-nominated Sleepless in Seattle. Now with attachments. Jeff brings his deep humanity, his unique and unmistakable voice, and his cinematic economy of style to this powerful story of love, and betrayal, and the possibility of forgiveness. With meticulous plotting and masterful language, he brings life and light to characters as real as they are unforgettable. Oh my gosh, I, you know, you can't get a better endorsement than that for a book. You know, that's, that is wonderful. And I tell you, I love it. Everything about this book, hearing about it, I cannot wait to uh, pick it up for myself. So, uh, as you know, we're going to have links in the show notes. When you when you get all done listening to this, go ahead and click that links for Mr. Arch and his book and where to find and follow him on social media. I want to take a moment and say a very special thank you to everybody out there who listens to the show. Where we've got great numbers week in, week out. But right now, thanks to the many locations that the show is available on, the many podcast platforms that the show is on, I've I've got quite the audience in India, and uh, in that whole region, and all of you out there in India right now who are downloading and listening to these shows, uh, a very heartfelt thank you to you, and uh, and my prayers go out to you. I know you are having a rough time right now with COVID, and uh, I just I'm, I'm very thankful that you are listening to the show. I hope this show is bringing a little bit of entertainment, and that you are finding authors and stories to uh, to read and uh, you know if you found something very special something that you have come to enjoy then make sure you let us know uh, you can find and follow the show on Facebook Twitter and Instagram it's just the sample chapter podcast let me know what uh, what you're listening to and you know this is not just India this is anybody out there listening reach out to me if you're not on social media and you want to reach out to me through email, you can do so at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to leave me a voicemail, I'm, I'm still looking forward to that first voicemail. 
And, uh, you know, somebody that's going to do that. I've had a few voicemails so far, but they're sales pitches. <laughs> and I don't, maybe I should play those. Maybe I should play snippets of those. But if you have a recommendation or a comment or something you want to do, you can call one 860 And uh, I will play that on an upcoming episode. Um, I also would be remiss if I didn't go ahead and mention that our Sample Chapter Podcast Tea Public Store is uh, doing a sale again right now. Uh, T-shirts are like $14. They have masks, a whole bunch of other merchandise, and it's all on sale right now. We have two different designs for the show currently. I need to find out where the other designs are, where they are in development, because I've got more designs coming. And once they're ready, they'll be up on that storefront as well. But uh, yeah, you can go to the show notes and click that link for the uh, store and and grab yourself some t-shirts if you like or a mask or whatever you like. I also invite you to click that link in the show notes for our sponsors, starting with Scrivener, my favorite writing software. Those of you who've been following the show, I talked a little bit last week about something I was up to where (laughs) the series that I'm writing right now, I realized book two was actually going to be book three. And so I had to go back in and create book two, and I'm, I've am i discovered how to move all of my character information and locations from one book to another, and it's been great, because then I can just, I just slide chapters over, I slide ca- character information over. Scrivener makes it so easy to recover from a mistake. Check out this advertisement and learn how you can save 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener writing software, built by writers for writers. All right, thank you once again to Scrivener. I love having them as a part of the show. Another group I really enjoy having as a part of the show is Audible. Audible has partnered with us. They are offering a free audiobook and 30-day trial. If you click the link in the show notes, it's audibletrial.com slash chapter. And you can remember that, or you can just click that link in the show notes and you can get that deal. Here is some more information on that. Hello, friends. Jason here. And I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a great offer from Audible. Like you, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job, a family, I'm a thriller author, and I do this weekly podcast. But I also love to read. That's where Audible is a lifesaver for me. Whether I'm mowing the yard, working out, driving back and forth to work, or doing some other menial task, I can still listen to an incredible book through Audible. And now you can get a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash samplechapter. By doing that, you'll not only have that 30-day trial, you'll also gain access to guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, exclusive Audible originals, and even podcasts like the Sample Chapter Podcast. Last year is the first time I ever achieved my own personal reading goals, and it was because of some wonderful titles I listened to on Audible. Some of those titles were Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, narrated by Will Wheaton, the Awaken Online series from Travis Bagwell, narrated by David Stifle. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, narrated by the incredible Ray Porter. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention previous guest Scott Meyer with his Magic 2.0 series, narrated by Luke Daniels. It's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time. Hey, full disclosure, by signing up at audibletrial.com slash samplechapter, The show does get a little monetization, which goes directly towards any production needs uh, with the show. So you're also helping us out here by signing up. So what are you waiting for? Head on over now to audibletrial.com slash sample chapter and start your free 30-day trial today. 
I thank you once again to Audible for partnering up with the Sample Chapter Podcast. Uh, I also want to thank our podcast friends over at Pop Goes the Culture Network, home to about a dozen other pop culture shows, including one of my favorites that just came back on the air, the Alamo Draft House Podcast. So wonderful hearing about theaters beginning to reopen again, and uh, this was great getting to hear that show back on the air. So make sure you click that link in the show notes for Pop Goes the Culture, and go in and you can check out all the other podcasts in there, all of them pop culture related, movies, TV, celebrities, it's all there. And of course, you can find the links for this show, the Sample Chapter Podcast. Our other podcast network that we are so happy to be a part of, Project Entertainment Network, home to 35 different shows, shows of a wide variety of subjects, from monsters and horror, to writing, to book reviews, to writing books. Um, <laughs> you know, people are actually reading the book as they write it on their podcast, and it's all right there within the Project Entertainment Network, so check those out, and you'll find a show just like this one. This is Jim Adams from Monster Attack. Hey, if you remember that monster movie from your childhood that got it all started for you, the one that really got you interested in monster movies, horror movies, sci-fis, and cult films, then you're going to want to listen every week to Monster Attack. We look at some of our favorite monster movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. With new episodes uploaded every Monday, it's Monster Attack. Exclusively on the Project Entertainment Network. All right, so I've gone on long enough now. Uh, I'm looking forward to going ahead and getting this over to our interview with Mr. Jeff Arch. His book, Attachments, comes out a week from now. Don't forget to hit that link in the show notes afterwards whenever it's available. Uh, Whenever he does his reading, you're going to hear a little setup for the book, uh, setting the scene and a little bit of the characters. It's it's great, such great stuff, and you're going to love it. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Jeff Arch. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Oh my goodness. This week we have a very exciting guest with us. Mr. Jeff Arch, uh, you know him as the writer of Sleepless in Seattle, is our guest. And I'm so excited to get over to that interview. A little bit about his background. Jeff Arch grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he spent two of his high school years at a boarding school, much like the one depicted in today's novel, Attachments. In the 70s, he studied film, TV, and theater production at Emerson College in Boston, and then moved to L.A., where he worked as a concert lighting designer and toured the country with national rock and reggae acts while teaching himself to write screenplays on the side. Years later, married and with a young family, He was teaching high school English and running martial arts school when he heard the call to write again. In 1989, he sold the school he'd built and rented a small office, gave himself one year to write three screenplays. The second of those, a quirky romantic comedy where the two lovers don't even meet until the very last page, sold almost immediately. And Sleepless in Seattle became the surprise mega hit worldwide. For his screenplay, Jeff was nominated for an Oscar as well as for the Writers Guild and BAFTA Award, among others. His other credits include the Disney adventure film Iron Will, New Line's romantic comedy Sealed with a Kiss, and the independent comedy Dave Barry's Complete Guide to Guys. His script for Saving Miley earned the 2005 Humanitas nomination, an honor Jeff treasures. He is a father, stepfather, father-in-law, and grandfather, and is now based in Malibu, and I'm so thrilled to have him here with us today. Mr. Arch, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so weird to hear that all read. Uh, <laughs> that's a really good good night story, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you, everybody. We'll uh, see you later. That's all the time we have. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How are you doing, sir? Just just fine. I had my second shot uh, a week ago, and I think I'm over all the crap from that. And um you know, think, it, things are good. I got a, three weeks from today, this book is coming out. So if I had a complaint, I would keep absolutely keep it to myself. <laughs> Fantastic. I just got my second shot a couple weeks ago and I finally got over. I just had a, I had a constant runny nose after that it was the only side effect, which I guess, you know, I count myself lucky. 
I've never heard of that particular side effect in these shots, but I'm not even sure if it is a side effect. It was, you know, maybe it was allergies. <laughs> like you said, the weather has been changing a lot in Missouri. So you know. it sure has, it sure has. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't start from the beginning where you, you definitely lived that classic writer folk tale of selling off everything and giving yourself a year to write. And next thing you know, sleepless in Seattle comes out of that what a remarkable tale uh did you know when you were writing it that you had something special you know jason i this is gonna i knew the minute i got the idea Mm -hmm. it it never happened like this before and it hasn't happened since Um, it was the most remarkable night of my life that i this idea just sort of came down from the sky came down from this from the heavens and i knew if i pull this off um, as soon as I heard that title in my head, I knew if I get this right, I got a monster. <laughs> and even though I knew I was going to have to pull off a love story where the people don't meet, which hadn't been done, um, that was be a little tricky. But I, I knew if you get this right, it, you know, I even said to myself, 30 years from now, they're still going to be making puns out of that title. And I'm not really an arrogant person. I mean, I, <laughs> but I, it's just one of those things where the whole thing dropped down and one evening and uh you know just a couple hours the title the setup you know there's a lot of stuff i didn't know but uh i knew pretty much the six things you have to know before you start a screenplay so i knew those and i had filled in those blanks and then the rest of it was i think it took a month to write i mean like a oh, bat out of hell so it's and then it was just okay now you got to do it but i i never had any doubts and I wish I could say that about the book uh you know you know I've had things open before I've had movies open stage play open musical um and you know you're always nervous Mm -hmm. and I knew what I had in each case I I knew what the potential of each one was and I didn't have any illusions with this one I think I know what the potential is um (laughs) I, you know, as a craftsman, I know it's crafted well, you know, if, if you, if you make tables, you know, and you make tables for 40 years, you can make a certain table and know this is crafted well, this, this does everything it needs to do as a table. That doesn't mean everybody's going to like the table, right? but at least, you know, the table you sent out is well-constructed, well-done and uh you know will be loved by some people you don't know how many people won't and you don't know how many people are just going to ridicule it you know and Mm. and now my god uh with all this it used to be if the rule in sales was that if somebody doesn't like a product if, if someone likes a product they'll tell one person if they don't like it they'll tell nine and up until yeah. a while ago that was true but now you can tell the whole world if you hate something. <laughs> yeah. and you can tell the whole world if you want something. And the, the, the line is blurred between a critic in Lawrenceville, Kansas, you know, a, a, you know, a person who just reads stuff or, or the New York Times. You know, the people reading these quotes don't really make a distinction. So, you know, this is the opposite of that thing where the, the mouse takes the thorn out of the lion's. This mm. is where the mouse can kill the lion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never thought of it that way before. So yeah, I'm nervous, you know, and, and it's really personal. I don't have music to hide behind and actors and, and lights and, you know, all the tricks that movies can do. This is just mano a mano, man. This is me and you. Yeah. And uh, it's a little, that part I like, it's how to get it from me to you <laughs> is what's happening now the next three weeks. <laughs> well, now, I mean, you, you had a long history of, of screenwriting and producing. Uh, you, you've done a lot of things. I was really surprised to find out this is your first novel. Um, I, I'm not sure how else to ask this other than why, why so long or, or why not before now? Well, the funny thing is um, <laughs> I, I got the idea two years before I got the idea for Sleepless. So these people have been in my head for a really long time. Oh, wow. Um, actually, I looked it up. Um, it took less time to build the Washington Monument. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, when I was a, when I was in grade school, a teacher told us once some book that we were reading. They said, you know, the author spent eleven years on this. 
and I was in sixth grade. I was only 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And that kind of did two things. One, it just fascinated me. Every time I heard that some scientist or some inventor had spent 10, 20, 30 years on something, it blew me away. But one thing I knew I wasn't ever going to do is spend 11 years writing a book. So instead, um, from idea to conception was 33. Uh, but I wrote it as a movie in 1990. I wrote it as a movie script. And uh, it got a lot of interest. It started to fade. And then just something told me, you know what, just pull this. You're not ready. It's not ready. Mm -hmm. And like eight years later, I, I was looking at it. And I just said, you know what, the, again, I, I, I know I told you this in the before we started recording but so many times in life when i thought i was getting screwed i'd say maybe you're just being protected mm. so i'm glad that movie didn't get made and uh so when i started it I, I then i realized it's not getting it didn't get made and you put it away and you had that whole experience because it doesn't want to be a movie it wants to be a book yeah and you know this as a writer and every other writer knows this sometimes you try and force the medium onto the story and some things want to be plays some things want to be movies some people want to, some things want to be books this thing really wanted to be a book and that scared me because that other guy took 11 years <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i was busy uh i didn't i you know at this point i had two little kids i didn't have 11 years to figure something out right so uh but then i realized what probably made trips novelist up so much and that is you know, in a screenplay, you got 110 pages, no matter what, mm -hmm. you know, you can fudge it five or 10 on either end. But today's screenplay is about 105 or 110 pages. When I wrote Sleepless it was, you know, 120. But that's it. You've got to figure out how to tell a story and yeah. 100 minutes. Oh, my gosh. And that forces you into uh, a level of a discipline and economy and you cannot use too many, you know, what, how few words can you use to say something mm -hmm. and, and your descriptions and everything. And also especially, well, movies, movies, for sure. The people that read scripts don't want to read. So you got to keep the interest of somebody who doesn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. Now with a book, I'm going to assume that nobody's going to be forced to read this. So that problem is over. But anyway, I realized, well, what you have now is an outline for the book, because what scared me about novelists is that, you know, you can get lost. How do you know when to end it? How do you know? I didn't know anything about novel structure. I didn't study it. But then I realized, you know, you got an outline. You've already figured out the story from beginning mm -hmm. to end. So use that script as an outline, which I started to, but then it took on a life of its own. And, and uh -huh. now the only similarities are there were three characters and a teacher. Everything else uh, has changed over the years. But uh, I had a, you know, you were telling me about the thing about stealing, oh, because your book about a, a novelist who may or may not have stolen their ideas <laughs> yeah. from another writer. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, one of my friends wrote this short story and he got this award for it. And I read it. And in his short story, he had little chapters that had the name of a character in each chapter. And I never forgot that. And uh, I've been in a little bit of touch with the guy. We, it's been almost 50 years since this happened. And I called him up about a month ago and said, hey, you remember that story you wrote? And he said, yeah, I won an award for it. I, I had forgotten that. And, and I said, look, I really liked it. And I was waiting all my life to cop that technique. And to I love that technique. And to find some piece of material that I could, that would be appropriate for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, I said, so listen, man, I'm going to send you a book and I'm putting you in the acknowledgments, but I stole it. And he said, don't <laughs> worry, I stole it from Faulkner. So I said, <laughs> and then, you know, the next question is, who did Faulkner steal it from? So, you know, it's just a technique. It's like if you're a painter and you find out that somebody used tongue depressors to, to smooth out and you say, OK, now I know that effect. So, you know, I'm, I'm joking. I know I didn't steal it, but I mm -hmm. had this I had this technique filed away in my head. So the combination of this thing not working as a movie, wanting to be a book, me freaking out, then realizing I already had an outline, then I realized I could dust off this, this technique. Mm -hmm. it's, I, was, I was sold. And so I started, I think on May 1st, 1998, and wrote it in between other jobs. And uh, you know, the, the, the 
part of it was there was no in between other jobs. I, at the peak of my career, I was writing three movies at the same time mm-hmm. uh, in different stages. I would be developing one, writing the middle of another one, and finishing a third one. But I was an assembly line. And <laughs> there wasn't time to take off, uh, you know, one month here, two months there. But when I had a month here or two months, or if I only had two movies to write, that would be the third thing I was writing because I was definitely used to writing three things at a time. Uh-huh. I remember saying to my wife at the time, you know, we were, we were at a movie and the lights were going down. And I just said, I wonder what it's like to just write one of these things at a time. It had been years. <laughs> it had been yeah. years. So for the last, you know, I, you know, this summer I've been doing edit, this winter I've been doing edits on it because, uh, you know, we, final galleys and, you know, I had about 10 chances to go through it. So uh, we got the review copy and then I made about 300 changes in that over, um, over the last two months three months mm-hmm. and i'm supposed to be working on a tv series and uh i put that aside so this is the first time in my life that i just had one thing to do wow and it's been it's been great i always wondered what it's going to be like to walk down the beach or take the dogs out and not have some story problem to work out in my head and <laughs> trust me attachments gave me more headaches than any other thing i've ever done these people were they they wanted their story told in a certain way and I was just following along it's it's like with if you're a parent and you have a kid that's hard to discipline and then you go somewhere in public it's not so much that you can discipline them it's just you kind of hope they're best best today exactly (laughs) they're not going to listen you know so hopefully what you want and what they want are going to be in harmony Um, but I had some really big story problems with a story like this, especially I'm going back and forth in time. I'm going back and forth in different characters, having points of view. Uh, and it has to, two stories have to, a backstory and a current story have to um, progress at the same time and converge at the same time and conflict at the same time. Mm. So, uh, and then there was a lot of explanation to do. I hate exposition with a passion and, and I, try and make it so you never know you're being told what you need to be told. Yeah. But there, there were a lot, there's so much in this thing to have to explain before somebody can understand what's going on that, and I refuse to do exposition. So, you know, that, that takes a while. Um, these guys really beat me up because <laughs> some writers, and I know this, and there's, there's no right or wrong way. The, the right way is the way that gets your pages out and the wrong way is the way that doesn't get your pages out. That's mm-hmm. within that, you know, some writers cover their wall with index cards and grids, and they will not write a word until they've got every single thing figured out. And some wouldn't do that in a million years. And they just say, you know what, I'm going to open up the file, and I'm going to start writing, and we're going to see what happens. And they go all on intuition and discovery. And uh, I'm somewhere in the middle, I'm the Goldilocks one, I'm somewhere in the middle where I want to know a couple of things. And, and and there's other things I, I don't want to know. I'll, I'll, I'll go by discovery because I think that keeps it fresher. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't like the plan. You know, I, I without those characters with me, it's I, I don't know what I'm doing. So I, I had to have them involved. But I only knew that there was going to be a betrayal in the high school years, a teacher that connects these three characters and a chickens coming home to roost scenario where, where three people who had ended very badly are coming back together 18 years later. All I knew was at some point, one of them was going to go into the room of the teacher while he was dying and come out while the, other, while the others waited. And from that moment, and then you sort of know certain things. If it's about, so it starts when a teacher, when a, a dean of a boarding school has a stroke on page one and and on his way out of consciousness he calls out two names to his secretary mm-hmm. and they were the names of two students that went there almost 20 years ago okay. so when you have that set up you know okay well we got to find him that's a story you know that's a, <laughs> yeah you got to find him you got to see them in their current life you got to get them back to the school you got to find the other one. And then all, so certain things, and then it's, this one's going to meet this one again. This one's going to meet that one again, all three of them again. And you just know certain things have to be led to, but I would set the characters up and say, whose chapter's next? Who wants to do one? And there's six characters that have chapter headings. So, so it goes back and forth from six different points of view, telling 
they're not telling the whole story. They're just telling their story. Mm -hmm. But you get to see how they're all connected and everything. And I would just say, who wants a chapter? And the only rule was nobody got two chapters in a row. So a character would just emerge and say, okay, I'm ready. And then I'd go back and say, where were you when we left off like four chapters ago? And what's the thing you're after? And what would be the thing you'd do next? It was literally <laughs> like sitting, having a conversation with somebody say, well, how do you want to do this? And I'd sit down and I'd write and I would be two steps behind them, following them. And they would decide to do this. They would decide to do that. And I know the unconscious is working and doing all that stuff, but, uh, and they got, you know, in this case, the kid led me through the, through the thing and mm -hmm. they got me through the story. Uh, I told them what I needed, you know, sooner or later, you guys have got to have a scene together. You know, you haven't seen each other in 18 years and it ended really, really badly. Right. What's it going to be like when you're together for the first time in 18 years? And I didn't know until I got them there. I didn't know what was going to happen. So there was, instead of this whole thing of, I'm not going to know anything and discover everything as I go. This was, I, I knew where this thing had to end. And I just trusted and worked. It, it's almost like these are living actors that you're working with on the stage and just say, okay, let's work out the scene. What, here's, what's, here's what needs to be accomplished in the scene. What's your way of doing? Yeah. And their way was always better than my way. <laughs> No, I can totally relate. There was, uh, I had characters in my first book that tried taking over. I had to later on cut those completely out because they were just taking over the story. And then in my most recent one, which thank you for that plug. That was nice of you. <laughs> uh, I, novel idea. I, <laughs> I, knew, I knew how it would end, but I didn't know until about two thirds of the way through uh, fully if he was or wasn't. Uh, responsible for the the story idea and I, I was discovering it as I went and it just he started telling me like uh, you know yes or no or what what he wanted to do and what he was capable of it was amazing having that connection with the character and they would even invent other characters you know yeah. they would even invent so at one point Chip um, who's a high school kid in the current in the present tense even though the present tense of the story is 1993 and the past tense when they were in school are all in the 70s um, but in the in the current time period of the story uh, uh, he's a high school kid and he's 18 and he has no idea how he's connected with these characters it's his father that had the stroke uh, his girlfriend left him three weeks ago and is avoiding him and won't tell him why. And he's all busted up about that. Now his father's sick. And, and he called out for these two people that this kid never heard of. And he's pretty resentful and bitter that like, why didn't he ask for me? And, and plus just this, this, I don't want to say surreal, but the super reality of something like this is a normal school day. Yet my father is in a hospital fighting for his life. Mm. And we can all remember being teenagers, you know, our immediate needs as teenagers weren't big world things, you know, they yeah. were, they were, does he like me? Does she like me? And, and, and uh, so this guy's heartbroken already when this happens and, um, and he, he takes it upon him. He wants to find out who these guys are. So I would just sit with him and say, well, Chip, what would you do to find out? And he takes what he knows and his chapters are all about, him finding out what's going on and, and trying to figure out what the hell's going on with his girlfriend and why she won't even talk to him. Uh, so I sent him on a walk. One of his chapters, I sent him on a walk and he, and it was, well, he, he was going to go to this uh, restaurant up in the hills where one of the characters may or may not, the, the restaurant owner may or may not have been a, a, a huge mob boss, mobster. Mm. Okay. And um, I set myself up because I kept saying the restaurant was up in the hills. And I go, well, now how's this kid going to get there? So on the way, I invented a day student and he walks to her house and she drives him there. And then those two have this whole subplot. I had no idea she was going to show up. <laughs> she is possibly one of my, she is absolutely one of my favorite characters. She, mm -hmm. She's not one of the main characters, but she just showed up and she's got so much life and uh, she and the mob boss character, Carmine, uh, they, I, I feel like I would write a book with them. They, they never let me down. They were so much fun to write for. <laughs> they taught me so much. And it, it's just incredible how that happens. So these people are inventing 
it's like inventing the tool you need to do the job you just discovered you have to do. Yeah. Oh, this will take a hammer. Hammers don't exist. I'm going to invent a hammer. <laughs> and so they, I, they just marched through the story. And sometimes they'd stand there and wait for me to figure something out so they could get going again. Um, it was an, it's an incredible process. I, I have more control over a screenplay, but not as still not control, just more control. Yeah. Uh, again, because guys, whatever you're doing, you got to do it in a page and a half and we got to move. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, right. you have the luxury of book, you have the luxury of going inside people's heads, which you can't do in a movie. I don't know of the writers listening um, what you know about screenwriting. You might all be screenwriters, so I don't want to talk down to anybody, but the only thing you can show on a screenplay is what is seen and what is heard. Mm -hmm. Not what is felt, not what is thought, not what is predicted. Because a screenplay is like a blueprint and the camera team is going to look at that thing and look for camera things. The, the sound team is looking for sound things. The costume team is looking for costumes. Obviously, casting and actors and directing and everybody in their department is looking at that thing. Um, and, and then also, and so it's all, movies are about behavior. They're mm -hmm. not about thoughts. So you have to translate every thought they're having into some kind of behavior. And in a movie and a book, you can go and you can go into somebody's head for three pages, four pages, and <laughs> let's drive them and then do the scene. Yeah. I, didn't have, I didn't have that luxury, but I'm glad, again, that I had the training and the discipline and, and to know how to write economically. And I, I don't mean financially economically. I meant how to use the fewest words to say the most things. Right, right. Yeah, right. you were able to keep it concise and, and move move the story along without spending a long time explaining right. something overly long. It's like, okay, we get it. Let's move on. And I, I think you'll find, um, you know, uh, going through it. It's one thing that's not is overwritten. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's definitely not overwritten. And uh, <clears throat> um, I don't think there's too many wasted words in there. I mean, there might be stuff you don't like. <laughs> that doesn't mean <laughs> doesn't mean it was an unnecessary. So what I try to do then was cut out everything, even though even though there's so much more permission to go places in a book, um, I still try to cut out every single word that wasn't necessary and go. leave only the ones that are. So uh, that's how that turned out. And they, they made themselves up. And, you know, the idea of being able to get into somebody's head, I would learn what they were thinking. I didn't mm -hmm. know what they were thinking. You know, you, you yeah. every writer knows this. You don't know what the hell's going through their minds <laughs> until something comes out of their mouth that's just revelatory. Right. And sometimes that's, yeah, you get to, uh, with the screenplay, you've got the actors to rely on to take the personalities and, and make well, what they want out of it. You, I want to say with all, I, I have so much respect for actors. You, you, people who haven't, people who, have ever worked with professional actors who, who really get the craft. Uh, it's amazing what these people can do. Um, obviously, when you read about their personal lives, there's a lot of stuff they can't do, but it's amazing <laughs> what they can do. Mm -hmm. And um, But that doesn't mean there, there's, I trust them, but I don't rely on them. I don't know if sure. it's in, I'm splitting hairs, but why a lot of people overwrite or miswrite their screenplays is they're not trusting the actors. Okay. They want to, you know, they're trying to control the director. They're trying to control the actors. And, and, you know, even on a page, you're trying to control an actor that might not show up for another three years in the development process. Um, but uh, you can't, you can't rely on that. You know, you have to do things in a certain way, subtly, so that you get the line reading that you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes they're going to, you know, they're going to see it their own way and that's what they're good at. But I don't take that many chances. Uh, the, and the way I do, especially movie dialogue, there's no lines they have to change, but um, they, the intention is there. And I do trust to rely on them. It's just that you can't rely on them too much. The sure. same, you can't, you can't rely on anybody too much. Let's, let's face it. Um, you know, you have to show up as yourself and, and hope. And again, in movies, you have no idea that you're going to be there when this is getting made. And quite oh, often, gosh, for, yeah, that's a thought. I didn't think, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> quite often, for writers, you're not going to be there when the movie's getting made. 
there might be a writer there it might not be you and there might actors might decide you know i'm going to take over this some actors have their own writers that they bring in to do their dialogue only but without thinking how this meshes with everything else so uh -huh. it can be a real um it can be a real mess but it can also be a real gem and you know you don't know but especially with sleepless knowing okay this is this is my first big sale uh it's looking like it's going to get studio treatment uh, i'm a rookie writer and uh, there's a reality here and and this was just the beginning of where it became a trend among studios to hire a lot of writers in succession and sometimes teams of writers working at the same time who don't know it uh that there's somebody else working on the same script um there's there's a i knew as a rookie i didn't want to manifest not being there but i knew it's very possible i won't be there so mm -hmm. i put booby traps in that script all over the place <laughs> i'm not before it gets to an actor another writer is going to be dealing with this so i put certain things in there that cannot be changed no matter what you do yeah <laughs> uh, or the whole thing falls apart so um and you know, and you know, Nora Ephron came on with Sleepless, and and there were things that she changed, but she couldn't change the big things. Right. And and you know, when an actor like a guy like Tom Hanks takes a scene where he's coming in to calm his kid down from a nightmare, uh, I think he, I think he worked out a lot of that actual dialogue. Uh, but the scene I wrote was also, you know, the words in that were beautiful. He just made it more now that he's into this and he feels mm -hmm. like his kid's father, and they've been acting together. He did it. He did it um, his own way, and he, he's he's amazing. He's an amazing writer, anyway. So I. Sure. Um, but the point of the screenwriting part of it is that there had to be a scene where he go where the kid has a nightmare, calls out for his mother instead of his father, mm. but his father's the one that has to go. Right. And there had to be a scene where the father goes in, and instead of saying what every other parent says in real life, it was just a dream. Go back to bed. Uh, he goes in and sits down with his kid. Mm -hmm. That had to happen. You can't tell the movie without that scene. So I trusted that if they get really good people, they're going to handle it, mm -hmm. and which is exactly what happened. So I'm not the author of every word in that script, but I'm the author of the script that, that they, you, you know, I, I built the thing. Right. So and speaking of, yeah, and then speaking of like then whenever you on the other side of that, now that you have with this novel, it's now up to you to do every thought and every sitting down. So now it's in, say, Sleepless was a novel. You're sitting down and you're in the mind of the father. And what is he thinking as he's calming his son down? And what's the, how is the kid reacting? And what's that doing to him internally? And uh, it's all, it's a completely different uh, aspect from there. You know, th those characters are sitting there right now saying, do not make a book out of us. We're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's the thing you know the material you 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 are in partnership with your material and mm -hmm. and uh you have to listen to it and if i decided there probably would be money and you know tristar would go along with it if i decide okay i want to make a novel out of this uh there could be a market for it but i, I can't see this i can't see writing those spaces filling in those spaces between what happened yeah it's just it's not a novel it's a movie and attachments is going to be a movie but it had to be a novel first and it was trying to tell me that for eight years mm -hmm. I, I was going to ask about that if if attachments became a movie who who gets to do the uh the script for that well at this point you're talking to him um, <laughs> that's uh, great <laughs> at one point i thought i want nothing to do with this um i am so not sick of these characters but i've taken them yeah. And I don't have any ego. I, the book is the book. So if they completely botch a movie, I still have the book. And that, that's something I tell writers when they don't know where to start. You know, right. if you have a book, you always have a book. Uh, but again, if it wants to be a movie, you got to write it as a movie. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've adapted six, seven novels so far into screenplays and two of them got made. Yeah. Two of them got made, and uh, the five that didn't had nothing to do with the adaptation. But in each case, and every case except one, there was one case where I was not in touch with the author at all, not even a courtesy call. Mm. Um, they just didn't make themselves available. In the other cases, uh, I did 
you know, work with, not work with, but, you know, have a couple of phone calls with the, with the original author and, and the courtesy of showing them the script when it was finished. And in every case, they were very happy. You know, when I take a lot of pride in that, they were very happy with what I did to their book. I, I turned it into a movie. It was not their book anymore, but I kept the spirit and I didn't put me in it, you know, which yeah. is what a lot, which is what a lot of people do. I didn't, oh, sure. yeah. I didn't put me in it. Uh, I put, I put me into them. And if that's, if that makes any, any, any sense. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you read a lot of scripts where the writer is just trying to tell you how clever they are. And nobody wants that. We just want to be told the story. Just tell me a damn story, all right? Exactly. Then I'll want to know who the writer is. But writer, you know, so you can really tell the amateur and professional level by how much the writer inserts themselves into the script. Um, there might be a class or two out there or a book that says, try and say it cleverly. And oh my God, you wouldn't believe what, <laughs> what passes for clever. <laughs> uh, it's the, it's one of the hardest things in the world to write and it, un, unfortunately whatever it looks so simple you look at a screenplay and it looks so simple mm -hmm. because there's a lot of white space on the page there aren't a lot of words and and you have no idea how hard it is to make something that simple and oh, um, so you know you can look at a haiku my gosh it's three lines right <laughs> <laughs> I've tried this. I've written, I, 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 that form just beats me up. I can't write, I think I wrote one haiku in my life that I would show to somebody if I had a gun to my head. <laughs> but the other ones, go ahead and shoot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know but the, the form looks easy, but is really, really hard. And, and the book form, we've all read books. There's nothing you know, when you see a screenplay for the first time, you know, especially if you haven't ever read any, it looks kind of, it's so different. It's kind of magical. Yeah. So, and you, but a book, we've been reading books since we were read too. So uh, that's another thing I like about them is that, is that the movies as a tradition goes back like 110, 120 years. Um, books go back forever. So to be right. part of that tradition is just blowing me away. But yeah, when the time comes, you know, I'm, I'm working with people right now. There's no contract yet. I think I'm just going to wait and see what happens when it opens. Sure. Uh, and um, yeah, I'll, I will do the adaptation because uh, I think after I finish this TV series, I'll have that out of my, out of my system and then I'll be ready to go back to these guys. But, um, Fantastic. And right now, ready for a break from them. If somebody wants to <laughs> Yeah. Well, now what uh, you've got the TV series coming up. Uh, do, will be, are we going to be getting more novels from you anytime soon? Soon is not a word I would ever promise. <laughs> it's a relative <laughs> determination. <laughs> I'm 66, so things have to be soon-ish, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, uh, yeah, there's definitely there's at least one other book in me, and and. Uh, that's from something that happened back in 1985 and honest to god jason part of it is fear that kept me from writing this one because it's it's extremely personal mm. and it will be in first person and i don't know of any braver act of writing that you can do than oh, write about gosh. yourself in first it's like gonna be like a fictional story but not but it's gonna be told by someone who's exactly like me going through exactly what i went through during this one incident oh. um, and i gotta tell you because of some of the requirements of what's going to happen in that story i've been waiting this long to get good enough because so okay. my my excuse for what is it now 36 years is i'm not good enough yet to write this one mm -hmm. so we'll see you know it, it certainly wouldn't have written it as a first novel because i want to get a novel you know underneath me before i try this again uh, i can't take 32 years to write it i can't you know uh, i can take one or two and mm -hmm. see what happens so, you know, we're looking at three, four years from now before there's another one. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, hopefully we'll uh, see that in, in that time frame. That'll be, that's still very good and uh, not bad at all. It took me two years. Uh, you know, it's funny you said that. From concept to finally writing it, uh, my first book, I guess you could technically say I, I first thought of it in 88. And then I finally uh, published my first book in in. 2018 so about 30 years but 
you know, I never got real about that until 2011. That's when I, I found, I was like, oh, you know, that would make a, I remember that old story in high school. Maybe I should go ahead and write that. Um, well, you know, there's two clocks. You can have the clock from when you got the idea and you yeah. have the clock from when you started working on it, but it, it started when you got the idea. Sure. And so that had been with you for 30 years. And it's amazing how many authors I've talked to on the show who that kind of thing happens a lot. It's like, well, yeah, it's always been there. I've had this idea. I've been working out. And it's, it's amazing how, how many have that. And it's just that story that's eaten away and needed it's, to come out. It's the funniest thing because um, first of all, yeah, when you discuss the characters won't do anything that they won't do, but also these stories know what time they're ready. Yeah. So you got to it when you got to it, because that's, you know, I don't want to go on universe and fate and everything, but that's the time things lined up for you to do it. Mm -hmm. And had you, had you started it when you wrote it, you might've had eight years of just such complete abject frustration that you didn't finish it. Sure. So everything really does happen in its right time, no matter how, I mean, I'm saying this at a time when half a million people have died from a disease. And so I can't, go there and say, well, everything happens at the right time to somebody who lost their, you know, 54 year old sure. father. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but with stuff like this, um, it, it, there is a time for it. And mm -hmm. uh, when, when attachments was getting rejected over the years and different versions, I just kept saying, it's not, it's not the right time. Yeah. You know, I had that trust. And it could be denial. It could be, you know, it could be you tell yourself any lie to keep from the part about, Let's face it, how much it really hurts to get rejected. <laughs> it, it never doesn't hurt. There's yeah. never there's never a time when a bad review won't hurt. There's never a time when rejection. Oh won't gosh, hurt. yes. Um, it, how you handle it is different, but it comes in as hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, it, you know, goes into the factory as hurt, and then how you process it and everything, what comes out the other end, that has to do with your own growth and your own sense of perspective and like point of view and what this really means and how much it counts and does the world really give a damn? You know, you go through all that, uh, but um, it's after it hurts, what do you do? And you that's the part about growing up that we all have to do. And, you know, writers have more opportunities. First of all, more things hurt us. because That's, what <laughs> made... <laughs> that's where we write from is hurt. <laughs> that's what made us writers because of the things that hurt. Yeah. Um, and things that we observed that weren't right, things that other people seem to be getting right, but we couldn't get right. You know, being outsiders and being observers and just being people who, who just flat out feel things more intensely and, and who can walk past the same fire hydrant as somebody else and they'll see something about that, that that's poetic. They'll see something going yeah. on because they're really looking. And the other person goes, dude, it's just a fire hydrant. <laughs> you can't see that a family of squirrels and i wonder what you know those words i wonder that's yeah. our that is the that's the, the bread and butter that's the entrance to the cave that's the mm -hmm. key to get you in there i wonder i wonder what would happen if this happened i wonder what would happen if that happened and a lot of people don't go through life wondering um most people go through life knowing damn sure they know you know <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and, and what's that Mark? There's a movie open with this Mark Twain quote in front of it. And I wish I could tell you I read enough Mark Twain to know this without it being a, in a movie in front of it. But um, I think it went, um, it isn't what you don't know that'll kill you. It's what you do know that isn't so. Okay. Yep. So I mean, <laughs> um, he's talking about stubbornness, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so um, writers, we have to stay in wonderment. We have to stay in curiosity. We have to stay in don't know. You know, um, you know, if somebody cuts you off in the freeway and they got that kind of car, you know, there's the flashy, expensive, and they cut you off. And 90% of the people that do that just know socially they're assholes. And so you go, that person's an asshole, and you get all mad. Mm -hmm. That's everybody in the world. A writer has got to be able to say, first of all, we're gonna go, that asshole cut me off because we're human beings. Yeah. Now you get to the part that separates us from people that aren't writers and we're gonna say, what, could it, what else could it be if he wasn't an asshole? 
what else could it, what else could it be come up with five six seven other things yeah maybe maybe it's not even his car you don't know, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh yeah you know maybe maybe he's racing to get somewhere maybe you know there's terrible news something maybe he's being chased maybe he's chasing you can go maybe 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 yeah. and while you're doing that you're guess what you're not doing you're not sitting there in your car pissed off right now you're storyboarding right. in your head getting like everybody, it all together. <laughs> everybody else on the road is pissed off and you're in creativity and wonderment and maybe you might pull up at the same gas station at the same exit and that, there's that guy and yeah. you might actually be an asshole when you were right the first time yeah <laughs> yep you see him berating the person behind the counter you know you go my god that is a fucking that guy you know i want to take him out um <laughs> but at least you didn't spend the half hour in that space yeah. you know you spent the half hour in another space and so okay well it turns out this guy really you know somebody's got to correct this fellow um but that's the writer that's that has to be how we see the world like we we, we stop and pause while everybody else walks by and and that's what again that's what mm -hmm. makes us who we are so how yeah. do we and, and so you take that that's your personality that's your imprint that's how you come in then you take that and you got you have to learn a craft to serve that so i'm an absolute monster for craft i i you know uh, you, the craft is what sets the table for the art. If you're an artist, you're an artist, no matter what, if you're an artist, you're going to cook like an artist, you're going to fold your laundry, like an artist, you're going to do, you're an artist. So, you know, an engineer is going to see the world as an engineer an artist can see the world as an artist, but you've got to learn the craft and that sets the table. And the artist you are comes through the craft of knowing what has to happen. And, you know, again, what has to happen next is the only thing, uh, as a storyteller, you have one job and that is to get complete strangers to ask what happens next and not just to want to know to have to know i yeah. gotta know what happens gotta next. know gotta get the next chapter <laughs> because otherwise they could there's so many more distractions now especially someone reading on a on an i you know kindle on their computer or ipad or something uh -huh. they can be watching cartoons playing angry pigs or whatever those things are and, and <laughs> yeah do all of that unless you keep them there and the yeah. only way to keep them there is to keep them asking what happens next and that comes from craft oh my gosh the artist in you doesn't get them to ask that question the craft in you gets them to ask that question because it, it shows you where to put the things where they have to go to make the person keep keep going and uh that's something i really take pride in being able to do keep you there once i get you oh my gosh well you know Speaking of what's coming next, I mean, I can't think of a better way to segue into the book. Uh, Attachments, everyone, is coming out May 11th. So make sure you click that link in the show notes so you can pick up a copy of it for yourself. Mr. Arch, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you uh, working with me today and and uh, with some of the uh, confusion on my end and uh, <laughs> making this happen. I have had a blast listening to you. Oh, uh, is there some place people should go to uh, find and follow you? Uh, definitely on Facebook and uh, Instagram a little bit less. I haven't figured out Twitter. I've been on it for like 2008. I think I have 40 followers. I've not figured that one out, <laughs> um, but definitely Facebook. I'm wide open there. And, uh, you know, please definitely find me, ask questions. We do have a website. It's not up yet. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. And when that happens, I can shoot you. I think you and I are Facebook friends, Jason. So I can shoot you that information. Great. Um, like I said, I'll, I'll put links for all that in the show notes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for me to step aside with a drink and a cigar and listen to our guest, Jeff Arch with Attachments. Wow. Thank you. Um, okay. So we talked a little bit. Uh, I picked part of a chapter and uh the book goes back and forth in time to when these three kids were in high school and when they're in their mid-30s the three main characters are goody pick and laura goody and laura met at this boarding school a year prior to when this chapter happens and they've been in love ever since uh the setup for this scene is that the night before this scene happened is three weeks into the school year and goody gets this unexpected roommate this kid named pick who uh whose father is a mobster and who can't control his kid and just dumps him in this thing and drives away and now they, they, the kid did not want to be there uh and it's the 
he he knows that he knows from a conversation that his roommate Goody has a girlfriend, but Goody doesn't talk about her. So the next day, Pick is out, and uh, all the kids in the school are out doing service projects, and Laura, who is the girl, is with her two best friends, and they drew a service project that was on campus. Pick gets a note that he's got to go find the the field house to get stuff for PE. And he hears this singing and he follows the singing. And these three girls are, they're crazy for like the Ronettes and the Crystals and all those 60s girl bands, um, you know, be my, be my baby. So they're, they're practicing this song and they're vamping it up and he comes upon them. And uh, there's a lot of introductions and stuff, but I'm just, what happens then is that uh, Laura offers to show him where this field house is. And she leaves her friends and her friends are teasing. There's her high school kids and her friends are teasing. Today I met the boy I'm going to marry and all that stuff. And they're walking away. So the reason I picked this is because it is a love story, but everybody's in it. And, and uh, one thing I learned the hard way with a, an earlier script I wrote is that um, you, you have to meet the people that you want to be together before you meet the person who's going to come into this. So it's really important what order. So, and I, again, violated that rule right away with this. So the way I had to deal with it is you have these two people that are, boy, that are a couple, and then this third person comes in. And I had to show that it really was love between them, that it wasn't, you know, a, you know, a gratuitous betrayal or anything like that. So this is the scene where these two people meet for the first time and it is the beginning of their love story and the and it takes place over us the whole story takes place you know in one week but but over a school year uh um the backstory takes place over a school year so these two spend the whole year falling in love and not being able to admit it because picks friendship with goody and laura's in a relationship with them this is where it starts uh, so we're in northeastern Pennsylvania, not a pretty part of the country. This is not a dead poet society kind of uh, boarding school. It's a very kind of industrial area. So the girls are singing and Laura and Pick are walking away. So Laura tried to ignore them. She asked Pick which floor he was on and Skipper, and he told her. She asked if he had a single, and he said, no, there weren't any left. Who's your roommate then, she asked. And he told her his name was Goodman. The people were calling him Goody. Laura coughed and excused herself. Then she coughed again. How likely was this, she wondered. Here was this new guy, and he was so different and interesting, and look who they put him in with. Her first and only boyfriend in the same four walls, and none of this seemed fair. What are they singing, he asked her. Darlene Love, Laura said. She sang with the crystals. Please ignore those two. But Pitt kept listening. Laura couldn't tell whether to enjoy this or be embarrassed. It sounds kind of old, Pick said. Not that far back, but we like it. People tease us, but then they ask us to sing it at parties and talent shows. Maybe they just like to laugh at us. Why, Pick asked. You guys are good. Laura was about to defend her friends and herself, but then she saw that he meant it, and the compliment felt nice. What do you like, she asked him. What kind of stuff do you listen to? Italian death music, Pick answered. And then when she looked at him strangely, he told her that he didn't really listen to music, not music of his own, the way someone would have a collection and favorites. Italian death music meant opera. His father played it a lot, and his aunts and uncles, like it was in their blood cells, to listen to opera, to always have it on, at the restaurant especially. His father had a restaurant, and they had that stuff playing there around the clock. Pick didn't understand a lick of it, although he'd been hearing it all his life. Probably it came with age, he suggested, like dentures, mutual funds. Laura laughed. Pick looked surprised by that as if he'd never been told he was funny before, and Laura liked that look of surprise. They crossed Laurel Avenue, which wasn't much of an avenue, and as far as Laura could tell, had nothing to do with laurels, and she always wondered why they gave it that name. Pick told her that a lot of things were named Laurel around here, that the mountain Laurel was Pennsylvania's state flower, although he personally had never actually seen one, as if he'd know what to look for anyway. They just tell you this junk like in second grade or something, and they do it in a way where you couldn't forget it if you tried. But all you have to remember are the names of them, not how to find them. Laura understood. She said the New York State flower was the rose, which had always bugged her because it seemed so boring. 
or maybe not boring, but just not real original. Although the state bird was the bluebird and that wasn't so bad. Still not all that original, but a bluebird was a pretty cool bird, a sign of happiness and all. Pip told her she got off easy. Our state bird is the ruffed grouse, he said. But what? He looked dizzy when she looked at him. Laura never would have guessed it was the leftover haze from his half of Goody's Perkadan from the night before. What the hell is a rough grouse, she asked. That's what I wanted to know, Pick said, and I got shit for it, because in grade school, you're not supposed to ask what the hell is anything, especially in Catholic grade school, so they made my dad come in for a meeting. Father Terry said, I made inappropriate comments about the state bird. He said, what state bird? They told him the rough grouse. And Laura asked, what did he say? Pick shrugged. He said, what the hell is a rough grouse? Then he took me home and hit me with a fan belt. Laura couldn't believe something like that could actually be true, but she could see that it was. What about your mother, she asked. She died, Pick said. I was five. My dad got my aunt to take over, but she's dead now too. Laura looked at him. The field house was a block ahead of them, right there in plain sight. She wanted more than anything to take Pick's hand and hold it, but she knew she couldn't, and it made her mad that she couldn't, even if she could understand why. She wanted to hold his hand. She wanted to know everything about it. And those few blocks would never be enough. Those and a few hundred more would still leave her wanting. Goody or not, she was wishing for miles. All right, everyone. Uh, my favorite quote from there, opera comes with age like dentures and mutual funds. <laughs> that was Jeff Arch reading a sample from his debut novel, Attachments. The book is going to be available on May 11th. You can click that link in the show notes to pre-order it right now and pick it up when it comes out. Make sure also to click the link there for Mr. Arch and where to find and follow him on social media. Don't forget to also click the links for our sponsors and podcast friends alike and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when we are back with Michael Carter and his book, In the Belly of the Bell-Shaped Curve. You don't want to miss it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.